Welcome to Equisport Radio, your VIP pass to the world of horse racing. Down the stretch they come! Beth Salzman, take you inside the gate, behind the scenes, to the heart of horse racing. Equisport Radio, get tied on. Welcome to the show. I'm Les Salzman, and you're listening to the Equisport Radio Network. And today we have kind of one of those front porch shows with folks I really enjoy, and I think you will as well. We're going to start with one of racing, the racing industry's rare gems. Ursula Ellis was literally born in the business, and he never left, and that's been good for the, the game. He's a man with an uncanny understanding of the history of the sport, and along with his wife, Jackie, for the last two decades, they've taken up most of my Saturday mornings. And then in our second segment, Michael Finney will be joining us. Michael has the ultimate pedigree when it comes to calling races. He does that throughout the Northeast uh, during the steeplechase season. He's the grandson of Facing Tipton's Humphrey Finney, thus making him the son of visionary John Finney. And like both his father and his grandfather, John has been a real giver. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael has been a real giver to the sport. I think you'll enjoy him. And our third segment, a couple of good friends and actually dinner buddies of mine regularly. Kearney Hilliard has been shoeing horses for more than a half a century and Pan Am gold medal winner uh, Betsy Sell. We'll have lots of action, lots of fun, and uh, we're looking forward to a great show. Head on out to the front porch, pull up that rocking chair, and we'll find out much, much more after these commercial words. They are superstar athletes, but they don't ask for more money or go on strike. They bring their best every time they play. They are great thoroughbreds, retired at old friends. And here's commentator turning for home in the Whitney with a three-length lead. And here's commentator to win the Whitney again. And boy, he did it with some front-running style today. All commentator wants is a peppermint and to hang out with a couple of his pals, like Eclipse Award winners Hidden Lake and Sunshine Forever or even a Breeders' Cup champ. Prize the surging Sierra Roberto toward the inside, a driving finish in the turf, and here's the wire, and it is prized! Many of the past superstars of our sport are still running around, so come visit them at Old Friends in Georgetown, Kentucky, or at our Bobby Frankel division, Old Friends in Saratoga. I know they'll be glad to see you. Go to oldfriendsequine.org or call us at 502-863-1775. When you head to a horse sale, either looking to buy or sell, you really don't know what's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, horses can leave the ring undersold or overpriced. But what if there was a better way to ensure a fair market price for both the buyer and seller? Here at The Stable, this fall, we're offering just that. We offer the ability to see your yearlings hard at work while giving you a better chance to make informed decisions that are calculated, not spur of the moment. We'll also provide in-depth commentary from our trainers, blacksmiths, and veterinarians on how each horse is progressing. November 1, 1947, the death of Man of War. On Saturday, November 1, at Faraway Farm, Lexington, Kentucky, died in his 31st year, Man of War, a chestnut horse. 
That afternoon at Pimlico, where he had won the Preakness, at Jamaica, where he had been 1-100 to for the Stuyvesant, at Churchill Downs, where he had never raced, wherever men raced horses, word went round, man of war died today. There was little you could actually call grief. There was instead a sense of loss, of a vacant place against the sky. The old days now at last were dead, the last link snapped. The American turf had lost, and perhaps would never have again, a single living symbol, a breathing, high-headed, fiery horse which meant racing to every man of racing and to every wandering tourist from Portland or San Diego or Athens, Georgia. To many a grizzling oldster, the news brought back a flash of recollection of a great red horse with a high head and a flying copper mane and a gladiator's thews and fair play's wrathful heart surging from the barrier as Loftus or Coomer or Sandy or Schuttinger fought to control the opening burst of power that belonged to man of war alone. On that day only, the man who remembered Sisonby or Colin or Exterminator as the better horse would have been lynched, his body dishonored, his home burned, and his children hunted, and nobody would have been sorry. For man of war was, if not more than a horse, then more than a horse had ever been before. Years later, Willie Knapp, who pocketed him with upset and beat him for his only defeat, was to say, if I'd known what he was to become, I'd have let him out. It would only have changed the phrasing, not the magnitude, of Man of War's story. The defeat merely shocked some players at Saratoga on Wednesday, August 13, 1919, and there may have been some second-guessing around the auction ring that night as the yearlings from Henry Oxnard's Blue Ridge Stud were being sold. But when Man of War came out next time, he was odds-on again. Defeat had not lessened him. He was still the invincible. Such was Man of War the Magnificent. The debate as to how he compared with Sisonby or Colin or Exterminator is idle. Sisonby, beaten once and once finishing in a dead heat, was a splendid racer. Colin broke a string which, except for him, would have extended for five generations in the Belmont Stakes. He beat Fairplay ahead. Fairplay's sire and grandsire had won the race. Two of his sons and five of his grandsons have won it. Exterminator was the grandest stayer and weight carrier and almost the most honest horse of his time. But none of these three, not even the unbeaten Colin, dominated the racing of his time in the fashion of man of war. No horse has ever done it. He did not merely beat, he annihilated. He did not run to world records, he galloped to them. He was so far superior to his contemporaries that except for the one race against John P. Greer, they could not extend him. In 1920, he dominated racing as perhaps no athlete, not Tilden or Jones or Dempsey or Lewis or Nurmi or Thorpe or any human athlete has dominated his sport. In appearance, he was the most majestic horse of his day. As to confirmation, he was not by the rules perfect. He was too wide between the forelegs. Some call him a bit coarse. He carried his head too high. He was too big, too powerful to be a stare. Generally speaking, the rules are right, though it is interesting to note that Stymie, currently leading money winner of the world and inbred to man of war, lifts his head higher as he begins to roll into his tremendous stretch runs. But the rules are written for horses. 
not for man of war. His stride was tremendous, longer than that of any other horse ever measured, and as you would expect, his hindquarters were tremendous, too. His leg nearly straight, the quarters wide, the gaskins thick, the hock low set and strong. But the forehand, the stayer's badge, was of extraordinary development, too. Muscled heavily and far down, for the cannons were short. His withers were high, so much so as to make him appear low in the back in his prime, and to accentuate the dip which came with age. His head was wide between the eyes, his head and expression were commanding, his ears were rather small, his eyes large, luminous, intelligent. His neck was long, and the first impression was that he was a long rather than a tall horse. But actually, the measurement from breast to buttock was the same as that from withers to the ground. He had excellent bone, well-defined tendons, springy passions, and good feet. He was as near to perfection in soundness, health, and vitality as an animal can be. Man of War lost two races, one to upset and one to the white horse, which has never lost a race. In the pride of his maturity, it did not seem as if that red flame could ever be extinguished, and in sober truth, he fought death and pain as if they had been visible enemies there in the stall at Faraway. In fact, he did not ever quite concede defeat, for in the final days when Man of War could not stand, but could only thresh the floor as he fought to stand, Dr. William McGee gave him a sedative to spare him through those last bitter yards of that final race. A lesser horse might have been, in mercy, destroyed, but Man of War must finish out the course. He would have wanted it that way. That voice could only belong to one man, Ursel Ellis. Welcome, Ursel and Jackie. How are you folks doing this morning? Good morning, Glass. It's uh, good to talk to you. Same here. Uh, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. And yourself? Well, pretty good. Pretty good. Weather's nice. Good. I, was just, Kentucky. I was just talking to Lefty. Uh, she said she's feeling a little, little bit better. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, she's doing okay. You know, it's uh, uh, she got kind of a little upset with the doctor when he uh, he told her that if she'd been a little bit younger, she'd heal faster. But other than that, she's doing fine. <laughs> For those in the audience that don't know, Jackie, uh, I guess broke her shoulder in the stall a couple. What's that? About three, four weeks ago now. Yeah, I, I'll tell you about that. It was just wonderful. I tripped out of the stall mat. I smashed my shoulder into the. Um, the, the side of the stall door, and I fell flat. And I was yelling my head off, of course, and Ursel had to come to the house and call 911. So I'm laying there, miserable, and I look up, and this horse got as close to me as he could, swung his rear end around and started to poop. And he missed <laughs> I thought, horse, if you poop on me, I'll kill you. He missed me by about three inches, so it could have been worse. And, Ursula, I bet you thought that was pretty funny, huh? Ursula didn't think it was funny. Okay. I thought it was funny, but I, <laughs> he's, he's having too much. He has to do too much now with me down and out, so I don't know how funny he thinks it is. Yeah, I'm starting to become a, a pretty good little housewife. <laughs> you know, it, I've been listening to you guys for probably 16, 17 years on the radio. 
And right? Yeah, uh, you, you know, you know how I kind of caught on to Ursel was I had an office in Lexington and I had an office in Louisville uh, about that time. And uh, there was a book. I was working late at the office one night and on my way to dinner, there was a bookstore that was open and it was one of those rainy days. And I pulled into the bookstore and I was going to buy a racing form when I could still afford to buy a racing form. Yeah. Uh, and they had a rack of horse CDs. And I had always been a Joe Palmer fan. Matter of fact, while the other kids in school were reading Mark Twain and Shakespeare and Chaucer and all that kind of stuff, I was reading Joe Palmer, Red Smith, you know, and those guys and Joe Hirsch. So I saw this and I said, I got to buy it and put it in the car driving to dinner. And I was mesmerized. I got to tell you. And okay. so I, I became an Ursula Ellis addict. And, well, you're in trouble. <laughs> you, you know what? I've been trying to find the rehab center for that, but they don't have one. <laughs> I think it's called your local saloon. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and I've that, tried that many times. Uh, that, that particular reading of Man of Wars uh, was written by Joe Palmer for the uh, 1947 American Racehorses, which was published by the Bud Horse magazine. And uh, he wrote it for that. It's not on. I put it on the CD. Uh, I've always been particularly close to that horse because my dad was working for August Belmont, and he was when Man of War was a foal. He put the first halter on it. And uh, then I grew up. My dad was managing Dixiana Farm, and I was about a 15-minute bike ride away from from Faraway Farm. And so I used to go over and see Man of War. And uh, then I, I uh, went with my father to and attended the funeral also. So I've got all kinds of pictures of the horse here in, in our house and uh, um, probably more than I had my grandchildren. <laughs> but then I'm a little prouder than man of war and I am my grandchildren. How's that? <laughs> We're not going to tell them that, though, Ursula. That'll be between us, okay? All right. Uh, um, no, uh, you, know, you mentioned man of war and – over the years, again, listening to the show so so many times, you talk about bloodlines and pedigrees, and it's impressive. You know, so many guys today, they'll talk about pedigrees only because they read it out of the book. Right. And you, you've, you've lived it. You know, when you talk about a sire line, you've seen the foals. You, you, you know, you've seen them perform. Over the years, not, not the best horse, but what was your favorite horse? Not counting Man of War? Not counting Man of War. Okay. Well, let's see. One of them was, uh, I hate to admit it, but it was a Californian. And uh, it was a horse named Swap. And uh, I thought he was, I had the good fortune to see him race out in California. And uh, he was a freak. Not only that, he had, uh, he had a bad foot that they had to contend with throughout his entire career. And uh, he should never run in that mass race at Arlington Park. I mean, they worked on him all that night, and uh, he didn't belong in there. And as a matter of fact, if you check his past performances, he didn't run for about six months after that race. But he was a tremendous racehorse. Uh, I would guess that he would probably rank right up there. I have seen other horses that uh, I really was fond of that 
I, you know, I saw Count Fleet. I took a mare over to breathe the Count Fleet. I've got to see Citation. Um, and uh, I've seen a lot of them, you know, but that particular race uh, horse, uh, as a race horse, you know, uh, I thought swaps. Uh, I tell you what, Arrogate's going to, he may end up ranking up there uh, off that last race in, in Dubai. My gosh, yeah, that was that was a tremendous race. And did you notice what the announcer said when he crossed the finish line? Did you hear no, that? No, what did he say? He said, uh, are we witnessing the anointment of the man of war of the 21st century? And it just uh, it tickled me, too, because, you know, here we are. He didn't talk. He didn't refer back to Citation. He didn't refer back to Secretary. He didn't refer back to Gallant Fox or any of those. He, he, went, all, he went back 100 years. And, you know, uh, and go ahead, go ahead, please. But uh, but uh, I don't know how good that horse is. It remains to be seen. And I had the pleasure to go down to see American Pharaoh. Jack and I went down, and uh, physically not an impressive horse. You can't fault him. But the big thing about that horse was his temperament. My goodness, nothing bothers him. We walked in and um, they were cleaning him off uh, with a. Uh, power holes thing, you know, I mean, made a big noise, you know, cleaning the mud off of him. And I said, just leave the mud on him. It looks like one of mine, you know, so, <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't, uh, it didn't bother him at all. And they let him outside and he stands there and goes to sleep. And they let tourists walk right up to him. And this is a stud horse, you know, let tourists walk up and pet him on the neck and everything. So uh, I was super impressed with that. Swaps had yeah. that kind of temperament also. Uh, uh, his trainer, uh, Tenney, used to uh, uh, ride him around the stable area, you know, bareback. I but, remember uh, seeing yeah. pictures of that. Now, how how were you out in California? What got you out there? Well, I was uh, coming back from overseas. I was, I'm was i a Korean vet. And, Thanks uh, for your service. I, well, thank you. Uh, uh, glad to do it. Glad it's over with. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a little old to be drafted again. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're safe this time. But uh, anyway, I, I got to, I got to see most of the racing tracks out there. I went to Del Mar, went to, uh, of course, Santa Anita and Hollywood Park, Golden Gate. I really like Golden Gate. And um, saw Bay Meadows, of course, it's gone now. But I, I got to see a lot of racing out there and got to see swaps out there. But uh, and, and anyway... And then you came back home to Kentucky after uh, the service? Yes, I did. And then I went on the racetrack for a couple of years. Uh, got married and found out I couldn't make a, you know, make it on a groom's uh, salary. So uh, I came back and uh, I worked for Brick and Yearlings for Dixiana Farm, which was my dad was managing for, for a couple of years. And then uh, the Blood Horse called me for some reason. And uh, they were looking for somebody to... Uh, uh, go in the advertising department. I said, well, why not? It pays more money. So I did, and I worked there for about three years and then went in business for myself. And um, I've always had horses, um, uh, even though I've been doing radio since 1960, uh, I've always had horses, raised horses, and Jackie and I both trained. And uh, the whole time we raised our own, and I've got about four mares off the racetrack. None of them had any pedigree, but they all could run. And uh, we raced the progeny of those four mares. And, and um, 
just racing train her own. Two of the mares that turned out to be excellent producers, and we sold everything out of those mares because they were so. And then we had another mare that was fair, and then the fourth mare wasn't worth two dead flies. But, uh, you know, we had a whole lot of fun, and we trained for, what, 20 years, Jackie? Yeah, we used board, seasonal boarders. Yeah, we. California. Yeah, we took some horses from California, and then I had a good client up in Michigan would send mares to us. And we own a little farm in Bourbon County, which, uh, if you're not familiar with the last where that is, yeah. it's. Uh, just, okay, well, um, we've got some really nice neighbors. Um, Johnny Ward, who trained Monarchos, is right across the road, and uh, right across our next door neighbor is. Uh, uh, Tom Benson? Yeah, the Bensons. That uh, they just bought that, and uh, they, they own, race them. Yeah, they race, and they have New Orleans. They own the New Orleans Saints and the Pelicans, and and uh, we're the pole folks in the neighborhood. Now you're keeping the neighborhood up, though. Uh, John's an, a great guy. Uh, I was stabled, I guess, across from him at Palm Meadows a few years ago. Real good guy. Uh, oh, yeah, you train too. Yeah, you told me that. Where, where did you train, Les? I, I trained most in the, mostly in the Northeast, and uh, then da- down here a little bit in Florida. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And you know, we we had a farm down here in Wellington for a number of years, and uh, worked for a sales company. So yeah, like you, yeah, you know, we, we've both done just about everything you could do around a horse legally, and uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> and, and, and so so. We wound up here, and uh, you know, it, it's been a great industry for me. And, and uh, you know, in talk, listening to the two of you talk, it's been good, good for you as well. And I had a good, now you have I the had farm, a, you have the farm, yeah, and well, a couple of mares on the farm, right? Yeah, we have a small farm. It's just twenty-two acres. It's our retirement. Huh? It's supposed to be our retirement, but neither one of us uh, retired. Jackie's a lawyer, but uh, she's kind of a recovering lawyer now. She just works with uh, juveniles. Uh, kids that uh, younger kids that need help, need support, and uh, finding them foster homes and things like that, you know, kind of like a guardian ad litem situation, Jackie. That's it. That's me. Well, you know, I thank Dallas for his service. And I'll thank you for yours. That's uh, that's a tough task. It is. It is. It's a shame. It's drugs. It's ninety five percent drugs. It's just too bad, and you know. But the kids are worth it. They're some really, really nice kids, and hopefully we can do our best for them. You know, they're fortunate to have somebody there for them. Uh, so many of those kids, you know, they, they, okay. they feel abandoned, and they are abandoned. Well, thank you. Well, we raised six of them, so. <laughs> <laughs> really? You, you have six? Well, uh, I, my first wife passed away real young, left me with three. And then God sent me Jackie with three, with three, and we raised the six of them, and they're scattered all over. Yeah, they all you know, really, we've got one lives in in Europe, lives in Brussels, but uh, none of them in the horse business. Not a one. It's too smart for that, huh? Well, exactly. They actually make money. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I can relate. I have two sons, and uh, n- neither of them are in the horse business. But they're awfully happy. So, uh, you know, may- maybe they had the right direction. Uh, there you go. Hey, you know, speaking of which, Jackie, how'd you get it hooked up with this guy? Well, how do I what? How did you get hooked up with this guy? How'd you, how'd, how'd you wind up with Ersel? 
he was wandering around lonesome looking, and I said, come here. And uh, <laughs> I said, come on, you need help, and uh, so do I. So <laughs> it, was, it was love at first sight. <laughs> and, and, and how long have you been in love for? How many years? We've been married on May the 7th. We've been married 35 years. Wow. Good for yeah. both of you. Good for yeah. both of you. Hey, let, really let's well. talk a little bit more about so, some of the memories that you guys have. Uh, I know in listening to the show for all these years, you know, you talk about the changes in the business and things that are going on. Good, better, worse. What do you think? Where, well, where's the business these days? We, uh, we've trained from the Kentucky Thoroughbred Center, the, uh, and, uh, which was fun. Uh, it's a great place. It's a thoroughbred training center. So it's located in Lexington on the Paris-Lexington Road. And uh, we trained from out there. And, of course, we had to uh, load up in van, you know, a, well, not van. We had our own trailer, and we would pull our trailers. We raced mostly around Kentucky and Ohio and, and um and, you know, we uh, never had great horses. The best ones, uh, we bred a couple of stakes winners down the line, but uh, those were the ones that we sold. We had to train the one, ones that uh, either uh, were too slow or... <laughs> are not pretty. Or not, you know, I wouldn't vet out. <clears throat> and so we trained them. When we trained our own, we were hitting right at a 20% win. Um, sometimes we trained for other people and they were not as successful. We, uh, we did a lot of background training on the farm to build up their stamina. And I think that's, that's why we did pretty well. They never got tired. They were slow, but they never got tired. So we run most of them long. They'd break and they'd be last. Well, they'd break okay, but you know, they'd get out running and then coming down the stretch, they'd come like a house of fire. So. Well, horse, won our share. horses would get tired in front of them, so we won our share races that way. Well, you got a good bottom underneath them, and sometimes that'll win races. Oh, of course. Yeah, we uh, even after we got them, we would get them going for three or four miles, or maybe a little more, just on the farm before we even take them in. And uh, then I would gallop them, you know, three miles a day, just about, and, and uh, they really never got tired. So, uh, you know, they were, they didn't have a whole lot of class, but it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we. He asked, how has racing changed over the years since you, you know, you went on the racetrack in the 50s? Well, one thing big change that when I first went on the racetrack, it was, uh, there were no women around, no girls around, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh. That was tough. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the the uh, thing now is a lot of the best exercise riders are women. They have great hands and sometimes more patience. Uh, I bet you found it that way too than than most of the men. Yeah, uh, you know, I I rode about. Matter of fact, my wife is figuring it out because we had Diane Crump on the show last week, and you know we started thinking about it, and I rode sixteen different women riders in my career well good and, and for just that reason Ursula, because i didn't have the best of horses and a lot of bad horses at that and those soft hands and you know them kind of chirping them around did a lot better than them getting beaten up so i agree with you 100 percent yeah most of the time the women were sober <laughs> <laughs> you were a different woman than i did i gotta t- no i'm only kidding 
Uh, but no, uh, I, I believe, as a matter of fact, even in, in the stall, a lot of times a quiet woman can handle a big cold better than a rough guy. That's true. Well, yeah, uh, that's, that is true. And, uh, uh, but you know, a quiet, a quiet groom, uh, regardless of sex, that's what you want anyway. Absolutely. And, uh, another big change, you know, back when I was, uh, on the racetrack, uh, I was working for, for Jack Hodgins, who was training for Dixiana farm. And, uh, a lot of the farms like Green Tree and Dixiana and Claiborne and farms like that, uh, had private trainers and, you know, uh, even even main chance of the farm, although she trained <laughs> she changed trainers more often than I changed underwear. <laughs> but uh uh but anyway, uh a lot of private stables at that time. Which now uh you know and now it's it's not that way. You have syndicates that uh, they syndicate uh horses, you know, and uh, sell shares in horses and so forth. Nobody at that time had a hundred horses in their stable. It just didn't exist, you know, because those, the old time trainers, they wanted their hands on them. And uh, that has changed. That's another thing has changed. And then of course, uh, uh, television and things that, that changed racing and everything. And I, one thing that I liked about racing back in the forties and the early fifties was, um, they had more distance racing than they do now. They used to have the gold cup races, you know, that uh, the bowling brokes and the stymies and the Prince Quillows and those horses ran in them. And, you know, mile, well, the Jockey Club gold cup was two miles at that time. Now they got it down where it's damn near a sprint, you know, a mile and a quarter. But, uh, and they used to handicap horses. Uh, you know, Man of War carried 136 pounds, you know, as a two-year-old. And uh, they don't do that anymore. You, Somebody put 130 pounds on a horse now, uh, the trainer would have a heart attack. You know, so no, you, I agree with you 100. percent And I, I think we've got to got gotten into this sprint mode, and it's completely changed the bloodlines of the industry as well. Yeah, much and, more two-year-old racing uh, now than then, you know. But uh, although there was two-year-old racing, but. Uh, uh, and the horse, of course, horses raced more than that. They were, I guess, for some reason or other, less they were sounder at that time because uh, maybe it was the quality of the trainers. I don't know, but uh, but you, you you pick up the past performances of some of these old horses. Like I was looking at Bewitch, you know, uh, just today because I'm going to talk about her a little bit on the show tomorrow. They're running the Bewitch Stakes at Keenan, you know. She was a foal in 1945. She was the same crop as Citation, you know, and. Uh, you know, she ran that 14, 15 times as a two-year-old and ended up running 60. You know, I think she made 65 starts for KMAT. And, uh, and now, nowadays, it don't, uh, that doesn't happen. But do you uh, think because they were breeding more for distance that they had a little bit more stout, more robust horse uh, with maybe a little bit better bone than some of the horses we have today? I think so, and uh, uh, because there wasn't as much money for two-year-olds, there wasn't as much pressure on them early. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's kind of hard to put your finger on it, but, you know, the, the breeding industry did go to speed. I think also, I'm not 100% uh, sure of this, 
but a lot of people did not ship places south in the winter. A lot of them got turned out, they got rested, and then they brought them back up in the spring. And I think if I were going to go back to training, I would have to have a paddock. I could turn them out after they've been to the track because I think that cures so much. No, I agree with you 100%. Matter of fact, when I was training, we would, particularly with the Phillies, we'd send them to the farm after three or four races, give them two weeks turned out, let let them put their head in the grass, and they'd come back fresh again. But also, I agree with you, Jackie. I think in, in the old days, a lot of people, in the, particularly the smaller barns, they put their horses up for the winter and you know, bring them back in the spring. And, and that's why you saw so many horses, I think, running at six and seven in those days. That's right. And uh, I remember uh, Mr. E.G. Drake had Swoon Son and Dalgoon, who full brothers, uh, in training. And uh, he, they'd be turned out all winter. And uh, then he'd bring them out to Keeneland around the 1st of March and then get them ready for Chicago. And uh, those old horses, they lasted, both horses lasted, you know, four or five seasons. And uh, they were winning him, you know, uh, between the two of them, they were winning him three or $400,000 a year. You know, this is back. And that's what that meant 19, something. Yeah, 1950s, you know. And uh, well, up in a, almost up to 1960, I think it was. Tell him about that horse your dad had that was misbehaved and what he did to him for the winter. Oh, <laughs> That's a funny story. Well, Dad was managing Dixiana Farm, and they had a horse named Larrikin that Jack Hodgins had that was training. And uh, Mr. Hodgins couldn't get him to do anything. He was a rogue. They cut him into nail. They couldn't even get him on a racetrack. So he says, get rid of this SOB. And uh, Dad liked him. He was uh, by Burnborough out of a man named Little Christmas by Sweetball. So he took him and brought him home and then took him up uh, on a farm uh, south of here, not far, but anyway, and turned him out with uh, three old workhorses and left him out until he was out for four or five months. The snow was flying. It was up in the middle of November. They beat him up. And they beat the tar out of that old horse. And uh, so Dad finally got in a, uh, got the uh, uh, van and went down and picked him up. And he, he says that, I wasn't with him, but he said that old horse about tore down, getting into it. He thought he was going to break it up. You know, he climbed in there so fast. And they, he gave him to a friend out here that, uh, that was trained for him. And uh, they got him ready to run. And... Uh, feeding him, you know, sugar and baby in him and everything like it was never a sound horse, but uh, they got him to the races. They had more fun with that horse. They took him to River Downs, uh, which is up in Cincinnati. Yeah. And the first time he, he was a four-year-old maiden and they put him in the race and he ran three quarters of nine and three. And that was Ooh. unheard of. <laughs> they took him up and won some stakes up at uh, Randall Park and, uh, Thistle Downs, and they brought him back to Keeneland in the fall. And uh, Dixiana had a filly in a race. They were going six and a half furlongs, and uh, that filly was three to two, and uh, old Larkin was about five or six to one, and he broke a track record on him that day and uh, won by about three and a half lengths. And uh, Miss Mary Fisher, who owned Dixiana at the time, she was very gracious. She said, well, if we couldn't win, I'm glad you did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think Mr. Hodgins liked it very much. <laughs> I bet he didn't. Hey, uh, 
it, we've got to kind of run Ursula it, and Jackie. It's been great having you on. Now, folks, if you want to hear Ursula and Jackie, they're on Saturday mornings from 8 to 10 on Rewind Radio in Lexington. But if you don't live in Lexington, you can listen to them on your phone or device on the iHeart app. Uh, that's how I listen to you guys, by the way. Uh, I'm driving in the car listening to you. My wife is saying, do you put anything else on the radio other than Ursula Ellis? And I said, I don't know how to operate the radio. You know? oh, that's great. Thank you. Uh, now, hey, is there any way, if anybody wanted to buy that CD, is there any way that they can do that? Golly, it's kind of out of circulation. Now, maybe maybe they might have some at Old Friends. We could take a few to oh. Old Friends if they would want to do that. We have speaking, some left. Speaking of which, okay, I'd disappoint Michael if Michael Blowen, if I didn't ask you this question, okay? Because I've been oh. bugging him to ask you this question for years. Do you think there's a chance that we could get you to do a second Joe Palmer CD? Now, don't answer now. You think about it. But well, uh, he, yeah, you, you make a lot that. of us very happy. Yeah, well, thank you. We're, we're thinking about it. It's kind of a production, but we're... Ursa right now is working on his book, and I'm hoping he gets finished soon because he knows, like you said, he was there, and he's speaking firsthand rather than research. So we're hoping to get that going, too. Yeah. Good. Not well, only, let not me only know. You get to be my age, you can lie like a dog and nobody knows the difference. That's the advantage of being older, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the advantages. <laughs> okay. Well, again, thanks for being with us. It's been great and an honor to have you on the show. And uh, hopefully we talk often and uh, and soon. My pleasure. And, uh, thank you so much. No, my pleasure. And we'll be back after these words from our sponsors. They are superstar athletes, but they don't ask for more money or go on strike. They bring their best every time they play. They are great thoroughbreds, retired at old friends. And here's commentator turning for home in the Whitney with a three-length lead. And here's commentator to win the Whitney again. And boy, he did it with some front-running style today. All commentator wants is a peppermint and to hang out with a couple of his pals, like Eclipse Award winners Hidden Lake and Sunshine Forever or even a Breeders' Cup champ. Prize the surging Sierra Roberto toward the inside, a driving finish in the turf, and here's the wire, and it is prized! Many of the past superstars of our sport are still running around, so come visit them at Old Friends in Georgetown, Kentucky, or at our Bobby Frankel division, Old Friends in Saratoga. I know they'll be glad to see you. Go to oldfriendsequine.org or call us at 502-863-1775. When you head to a horse sale, either looking to buy or sell, you really don't know what's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, horses can leave the ring undersold or overpriced. But what if there was a better way to ensure a fair market price for both the buyer and seller? Here at The Stable, this fall, we're offering just that. We offer the ability to see your yearlings hard at work while giving you a better chance to make informed decisions that are calculated, not spur of the moment. We'll also provide in-depth commentary from our trainers, blacksmiths, and veterinarians on how each horse is progressing. Grinding speed, moving a little closer now, just two lengths off the leader, Dakota Slew, two lengths behind him, just two fences to go as they come to the black post and rail. 
Up at the front, it's tax ruler and senior senator holding strong. Making a run now, here comes grinding speed and Mark Beecher heading towards the lead as they come to the last. Up and over that one, it's senior senator with the advantage, but grinding speed all out in the far inside of the course, grinding speed, taking control over this one. Senior senator's trying to get to it, but grinding speed and Mark Beecher are gonna take the 105th running of the My Ladies Manor. Senior senator in second place, tax ruling in third. And on the line with us is the golden-voiced Michael Finney, who you just heard there, calling the My Lady Matters race. And, Michael, how are you today? Great. Great to be with you, Les. That's an interesting description of the voice. I'm not sure. I'm not I, I was being kind, my friend. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the end of that last conversation. It was a portal back to being with my father and watching him gesticulate, going, we're breeding Fourth of July sparklers. They're brilliant, but only for that long. They just won't stand the gaff. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. I was going to ask you that same question because Ursel grew up in the business with his dad at Dixiana Farm, and you grew up with your granddad and your father uh, at Basic Tipton. Matter of fact, for those of you folks that are listening that don't know, Michael is the grandson of the immortal hum Humphrey Finney, uh, the driving force that actually put Fasig Tipton on the map. And then his father was the visionary John Finney, who uh, took horse sales from the Middle Ages into the modern era. And uh, Mike, Michael, so t tell me, you know, you were growing up in, in that environment. Tell me a little bit about it. Um, well, it's. As you know, having been around the business most of your life, uh, grandfather said you get two guarantees. The courses are always interesting and the people are always fascinating. Uh, and when I was a child in the 60s and 70s, there was still, not as strong as it once was, but a Runyon-esque quality to the game uh, that uh, is more difficult to locate now. Uh, but when it comes to, I think, listening to the last part of your discussion with your first guest, one of the main differences that I used to hear from my father, because every year, you know, Saratoga, you'd have the premier yearling sale, and then a couple of days afterwards, you'd have the paddock sale, where it was horses of all ages and sort of misfit toys, as it were. And in the old days, he said, you know, trainers like Ben Jones, uh, Hearst Jacobs, they didn't want to spend the time on anything that wasn't sound. So they put them all, they put the heat to all of them early. And if they wouldn't stand the gap, if they wouldn't, if they weren't sound enough to train on, uh, they'd just move them on because they did not want to spend that much time on something they weren't sure it was going to be able to uh, get on and prosper and have some kind of durability. So I think that the training aspect, remember my father made the comment I made earlier right around the Fusiachi Pegasus. And, you know, horses that can now run maybe, you know, every four weeks, some even more than that. And he would always bring up Hail to Reason, you know, ran 19 times as a two-year-old, it might have been 17, but that that kind of soundness uh, was really essential in many ways to any number of the most important attributes of the breed. And, you know, 
if you look at all sports, uh, everybody wants talent, and they're willing to put up with almost whatever they have to, depending, uh, to get it. And I think racing is, is very much in the in the same boat. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, and it it's the never-ending challenge to find that, that right mix. Uh, and, you know, durability and... You know, and you mentioned the the paddock sale at Saratoga, and then you know the the sales at Belmont. You know where trainers were able to kind of get those horses out of the barn so they could get the fresh faces in. Uh, and I think even today that that's that's important for trainers, even the even though they don't have the same stall pressure they had in those days. Uh, yeah, it seems awfully uh, almost corporate in a sense. Uh, I think last year in Saratoga early, there were something like 500 horses uh, stabled there in May uh, with maybe four trainers. Yeah, no, it's it's a changed game. You know, we were talking about, you know, the days when you'd go over to Green Tree, you know, and it was, you know, a very special place. And and it still is. You know, Karen does a great job, but it's a a lot different now. Uh, good, Good or bad, what do you think? Uh, I think it's just different. I think there's some aspects of it that uh, I'm more fond of than others. Uh, There's some that uh, the basic dynamics, I think, are unchanged. Uh, The game, uh, to take it straight from the wire, the game is the game. Uh, But in terms of the people that are populating it and how the game is is lived and portrayed, uh, I think that it's in many ways a little less diverse and the diversity that I miss the most is the old school element. Uh, once upon a time, in terms of the New York Racing Association, the Jockey Club, Saratoga, uh, there was a old school monolith of power and influence that always worked as a sort of wonderful bulwark to all of the incredibly interesting and outliers that would pop into the game. And some of that obviously still exists, but it's not quite the same without that old school, maybe sometimes casual, sometimes very formal, but almost laconic elegance and style that the big old operations brought to the game. You know, back when there were private trainers and uh, Darby Dan had their own, Mr. Mellon had his own trainer. I don't, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think the closest thing maybe left in the game would be uh, would be Shug. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, in your granddad's book, and folks, if you haven't read this book, you really need to. It's called Fair Exchange, and it's probably written about 3,000 years ago. Uh, at, at least my my copy of it looks like it was. Uh, but uh, Mr. Finney talks about some of the outfits and some of the auctions back in in the 20s and 30s and and you're right it had a whole different feel oh and even then i can uh i I got some of the stories um from way back and uh, some of the best are in the book Uh, but it uh you know the world as a whole i mean i think a lot of the changes that you note in the game uh, reflect the changes in the world some of them i think are more contextually specific Saratoga. I don't think Keeneland's changed much at all. Uh, I was back there not too long ago, and it felt an awful lot like it did 
when I was growing up and when I was living in Lexington. Uh, and that's because I think that in terms of the how it's run, who runs it, who the power is, it essentially runs the same way. I think New York is very different. Uh, I think depending on where you go, you're going to get the obvious changes that, that the world insists upon at large. And in some places, like Saratoga, is just because it's now a very different empowered town, uh, everything, they're just vestigial elements of some of the things that I love most about it. Now, it's going great guns, and there are a lot of great things happening there. I'm not looking to be curmudgeonly, but it's certainly different. Yeah, you know, back when you're talking about, it was not unusual to see people on horses and carriages uh, going to parties, and, you know, it had a different feel. But you're right. It's doing great guns. It's expanding the population watching our racing. So, you know, the, the, the sword is too – there's two edges to that sword. Hey, Michael, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing these days because, you know, I know that your parents, you know, and, and your grandfather both, you know, really were very oriented towards education. And uh, Absolutely. I think my father was, was born with the most didactic soul of any man I've, I've ever encountered. Uh, he – he loved to teach. Uh, he loved to bring people along, and he loved to pass on uh, anything that he thought he'd learned that would be relevant to somebody else. Uh, I didn't see as much of that in my grandfather because I didn't spend that much time, but uh, I have to say over in the intervening years, given the people that I have met and spoken to, if I could leave half the legacy of human goodwill that that man left in the world, I'll have progressed a fair piece from where I am now. Uh, they... I, I think he did the same thing. I just wasn't present to see that much of it. Now, so with all that experience and all the things that you got growing up, and that's one of the great things about growing up in a good family, and you know, uh, tell me a little bit about what you're doing today. Uh, today, I'm a resident in Maryland, and uh, I've become a deeply committed. Uh, tried-and-true aficionado of Maryland timber racing, which, interestingly enough, is uh, does not run outside of the pedigree in the sense that my grandfather loved the Maryland Hunt Cup, which is, of course, tomorrow, and called it on a live radio hookup on one of the Baltimore stations. I think it might have been uh, BAL, uh, because much like Keeneland, until the 100th anniversary about 20 years ago, they didn't have an announcer. So people would leave the car doors open and turn on the radio broadcast, uh, sort of, you know, the way people used to watch the tote board at Keeneland before they had an announcer there. And when I was a kid, we used to get in the car from Connecticut and uh, make the, the trek down 95 to be here for the Hunt Cup, because even though my father was, uh, his business was in a different part of the game, uh, there was still a very real part of his heart that was here in Maryland. And... The Hunt Cup is is maybe one of the great last genuine distillations of sport left. No sponsors, ten year waiting list if you want to subscribe or pass. It's just been built steadily and you know, the right way over 120 years. And I love Maryland. I love being here because the basis of timber racing is fox hunting, and I love to fox hunt. 
and uh, some of the best hunting left in America is is right close by, and it's still horse country. Uh, horse industry has had some uh, some hiccups here in the, in the last couple of decades, but uh, Maryland is is horse country, and uh, I love the fact that the, there is still a sense of tradition that reigns here, especially in steeplechasing, that is more evocative and reminds me of what we were just talking about. You know, the interesting thing, if you look at the entries, both on the steeplechase side and the thoroughbred side in Maryland, the names of the trainers, in many cases, are the same names that were there 30, 35, 40 years ago. And that's unusual for the rest of the country. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there is, a, as I said, there is a, a veneration here, an appreciation here uh, for tradition that uh, is woven, is indistinguishable in terms of looking at the warp and weave of the fabric of steeplechasing, most particularly timber racing. Uh, it's a, you know, a strange, uh, it's part of it, but it's certainly different. And it's really centered here in Maryland with major outposts in Pennsylvania and Virginia. And uh, there's really, I think only other than the occasional timber race as part of the big meet in a place like Camden, uh, the only other state that has a timber race outside of those three is New York, which is Genesee Valley, which is a throwback <laughs> to the old days of the Hunt Cup. Uh, so it is, uh, it's been standing a long time, and the people that, that do it care about it, and that's one of the reasons that it's been standing for so long. No, there's a tremendous passion. You know, I, some of my best afternoons were at Fair Hill over the years, and uh, it, it's just a great, great environment and great people. Now, besides uh, that, what are you doing? Um, let's see, uh, pandering to upscale Anglophilia in the countryside. Uh, <laughs> shopkeeper. <laughs> I have a, a talk about your shop because I think it's fascinating. Uh, thank you. It's uh, it's a interesting amalgam. Uh, might even call it strange, but it nineteenth and twentieth century sporting art, traditional and nineteenth century French animal or bronzes. Uh, that's what I specialize in, but uh, we're also a leading rag merchant to the gentry. Uh, we do uh, block caps, uh, barber clothing, uh, this, all of the uh, the attire that you would, if in your mind's eye, you conjured up a day at the Maryland Hunt Cup. That's pretty much what Yoix looks like. Now, the, the store name is Yoix. And tell, tell us, what, because a lot of the folks that are listening don't, don't understand what that name means. Uh, it's a hunting interjection. Uh, I'm happy to do it properly. If it, it, why don't you give us a sample? Uh, if you if you heard it in the field, it would sound like... Uh, it's a cry that a huntsman makes when hounds first find the scent of a fox in cover. Uh, it's encouragement, tells them they're right. Uh, in Old English, it meant uh, the right thing. And every other hunt term had been sort of used to death uh, commercially for retail. So I thought this is uh, this is the right one for me. It's it's encouragement. You found the right thing. Get on with it. Uh, and before I opened the store, I had uh, I drifted into the uh, <laughs> the always interesting waters of uh, being hunt staff and professional hunt staff, and uh, it was a wonderfully educational experience. 
Now, if I wanted to find the store, how would I do that? Um, you can find it online, uh, yoiksonline.com. Exactly and and again, but the, for those uninitiated, is, how do you spell yoiks? Y-O-I-C-K-S, with an exclamation point at the end. Okay. Now, uh, but, but the not on the website. Is, if we're looking for yoiks.com, we don't put the exclamation point on, right? No, it's uh, you, just yoiks online. Is the, okay. Uh, no, no, ex, no exclamation point. Okay. It, by the way, folks, go, go just for curiosity. Go onto the site. He's got some really neat stuff. Uh, now, for Michael, you you're coming off the DL, right? You got pretty banged up a little while ago. Oh uh, yeah, I had a unfortunate uh, traffic uh, miscue, and you know, onward upward. Uh, that's one of the great things about being around horse people. The first party that you crawl back to on crutches there are at least two steeplechase jocks stand standing in front of you at the bar with far worse injuries and (laughs) wonderful motivation to you know try to pretend that those aren't your crutches and and go back home and get back to work so that's that element of uh you know suck it up get on with the, the industry isn't always pleasant but it's certainly been uh helpful and expedient in this case did it take you out of the announcer's booth for a while? Uh, the good news is it was in the late fall. It did. Uh, I usually go up and do the house handicapping at Far Hills, which I love doing in uh, New Jersey. It's, uh, it's the best all-around day of steeplechasing for me of the year, and I love going up there uh, working for HCP Sports and uh, doing the, the in-house handicapping. So I did miss that, uh, which was unfortunate. But other than that, uh, there really isn't, the spring, the season here is the spring season, and as a, uh, uh, I, I have the sort of uh, deep conceit of being a, a gentleman amateur race caller. Uh, I don't get don't get paid to do it because uh, I just do it in my backyard for meets that I love, that places I hunt over, and uh, I love that attachment. You sent me those photos the other day. And it was what Michael sent me was a picture of the races, I guess, on Sunday and then picture of the same field the next day with the hounds on it. And it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's as, as, if, it, as if it never happened, uh, which is in a lot of ways a great uh, capsule of uh, country racing, Maryland timber racing. And it's uh, it's run over fair hunting country, uh, the three races that uh, – my Lady's Manor, the Grand National, and the Hunt Cup are all run over ground that's hunted on, you know, fox hunted on the rest of the year. So it's not uh, it's not a tended, cultured. I mean, they're beautiful courses, but it is the of an older sort. It's a slightly more rugged uh, environment. And you'll be in the box tomorrow announcing. No, that's uh, that honor goes to the tenured announcer. Uh, the voice of Virginia steeplechasing, Will O'Keefe, uh, who has been doing the Grand National and the, the Hunt Cup since it had an announcer. As they said, they didn't have one until their 100th. Right. Uh, and, you know, he's a sets the standard for uh, for chasing. And uh, I just, I'll do the Calcutta this evening and uh, I'll have the pleasure of listening to Will tomorrow. Great. So it'll be a great weekend for you. By the way, if 
you sent me the link to uh, the CBS, the 60 Minutes thing, which was great. 60 Minutes did a segment. Yeah, that was a ter- that was a terrific look into uh, everything that I was just talking about. If you watch it, uh, you'll see that. And one of the really, especially you know, as people become more conscious of the fact that if you're going to race horses, you need to be more conscious about what happens to them afterwards. Uh, steeplechasing is an incredible second career for many of these horses. Tomorrow's favorite senior senator is a great example. He's profiled in that 60 Minutes piece. He's a horse that uh, did not have a temperament that suited uh, the confines of running in the flat and has found that it's really become, right now, the, the most ascendant, certainly. Uh, he's a, if he was at the track tomorrow, he would be a two-to-one favorite in a race that doesn't have many two-to-one favorites. <laughs> and Joe... Uh... Davies has done a great job. Joe's an old friend, uh, and Blythe, they've, they've done a wonderful job with him. Oh, absolutely, and that's because they're out in the country, and they're willing to take the time that it requires, and uh, that, you know, with a horse like that, who is, uh, it's remarkable how uh, well-mannered he was with Charlie Rose. He must There must be a bit of a ham in him someplace. <laughs> who, who, Joe, or really, the horse? The <laughs> Well, uh, either or, but the horse physically okay. can be uh, is not always the most pleasant customer, and uh, he seemed to you know sense of he seemed to sense that uh, publicity was close, which I'm sure Joe did too. The cameras were rolling. Uh, by the way, speaking of by the ways, you you have uh, you're probably pretty proud Papa today, right? Uh, Ryder, your son Ryder did a great job at uh, OBS yesterday uh, or actually, the day before. Uh, uh, he had, uh, I guess, spotted a horse for a, a blue a syndicate, a blue water syndicate. Uh, his, his mother's and uh, Meg and stepfather, Michael Levy's farm, and it founded at Keeneland. And they paid, you know, good money for Penhook. They paid three hundred for it, and uh, it brought eight fifty at Ocala. And uh, I think uh, he was happy, and uh, I was delighted and proud. Uh, I think, you know. The, it's amazing that he gets a chance to work with his mother, who is by that half the horseman she is. Again, I'll have made, made up a lot of ground in the interim. And uh, Michael has been so supportive, and uh, somebody's got to give you a little rain to go out and do something like that, and I'm delighted that it's, uh, it's working so far. Well, it sounds like he has the finny eye for a good horse. Uh, so uh, he got, he, he got the, somebody stamped that get. Well, the other day, uh, horses and hounds, you know, sometimes it just jumps a pedigree, you know, it just jumps a... (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so, Michael. (laughs) Don't don't be so modest. The other day when we were talking, we were talking about, and you you mentioned jocks on crutches. Uh, You know, there's an organization that probably doesn't get any publicity for the injured uh, steeplechase riders. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, There are. There are actually three different ones, uh, and they're all, um, they're, they're all doing the right thing. Uh, but the idea is to, and it's gotten, uh, the NSA has done a, a fantastic job of making sure that uh, in terms of safety of running the races and the well-being of the people that are out there fighting the fight, as it were. And uh, there's been a lot more consciousness to the point they're now, as I said, three different vehicles for that. Uh, but the idea is we the only thing we cut the Calcutta, the Hunt Cup Calcutta for is that in deference to what they're 
what they're doing out there. But uh, they're just trying to make sure that uh, nobody gets rich riding in steeplechase races. Uh, there is enough money there, and uh, the boys that go out and do it, excuse me, women, because uh, at this point, it's gender-wise, it's uh, maybe not quite a split field, but getting awfully close. Uh, the folks that go out there and do it, uh, it can't do it without them, and it is, it's no easy go. So trying to look after them if something untoward does happen is uh, perhaps the least we can do. A friend of mine years ago who uh, rode jumpers uh, said to me, you won't get rich, but you will get hurt. You know, and uh, that's <laughs> probably about as true as it gets. Uh, well, the odds, you know, eventually the odds do favor the house. Uh, you know, there are ways to obviously to minimize that. I know some amateurs that are uh, smart enough to make sure that they keep themselves on good horses and um, make sure that they pick the right spots, which helps a lot. But if you're going going out there uh eventually odds are one way or another even if it has nothing to do with you something's going to happen now and you know every time one of those guys gets on a horse or woman gets on a horse whether it's on the flat or on the jumps you know we always have our fingers crossed and say a prayer uh because it's dangerous work hey michael i know you're busy we're going to let you go in a second but one last question this is important to me okay Yes. I noticed on your Facebook page, okay, that you were wearing a pair of reading glasses. Okay. It, it, in the traditional Finney style, you know, I saw that on your grandfather. I saw that on your father. Now I'm seeing it on you. The the question is, have you mastered the Finney glare? Because your uh, dad gave me that one many times. Not to, not. To the extent or the power, or the focus that uh, that my father could, I'm not sure I ever saw that from my grandfather. It may have existed. You know, I've only seen it in pictures. Iteration, but uh, I imagine he probably could. But uh, my father had it to, had honed that tool, <laughs> and uh, there's actually a terrific picture of him in the racing museum, and the uh, it's on the wall behind where the skeleton is. And he's looking over his shoulder at Saratoga and putting that glare to use on somebody. And uh, it does. I do have an almost PTSD reaction when I walk in that room sometimes because <laughs> I got it more than a few times. Well, keep working on it. Don't use it on me or on Ryder, but keep working on it. And uh, by the way, how many kids do you have before we go? Uh, two. Uh, rider, and uh, I have a daughter of 16, uh, Ralston, uh, lives here with us, goes to student at Garrison Forest School. Great. Well, they've got a good dad, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, we'll talk soon, I'm sure, and uh, have Great. fun tonight, and uh, thanks for Thank being you. with it's us. Been a, it's been a distinct pleasure. I've enjoyed it, Les. For, for me. Uh, and, then all, and we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Betsy Sell, after a few words. They are superstar athletes, but they don't ask for more money or go on strike. They bring their best every time they play. They are great thoroughbreds, retired at old friends. And here's commentator turning for home in the Whitney with a three-length lead. And here's commentator to win the Whitney again. And boy, he did it with some front-running style today. All commentator wants is a peppermint. 
and to hang out with a couple of his pals, like Eclipse Award winners Hidden Lake and Sunshine Forever, or even a Breeders' Cup champ. Prize the surging Sierra Roberto toward the inside, a driving finish in the turf, and here's the wire, and it is prized! Many of the past superstars of our sport are still running around. So come visit them at Old Friends in Georgetown, Kentucky, or at our Bobby Frankel division, Old Friends in Saratoga. I know they'll be glad to see you. Go to oldfriendsequine.org or call us at 502-863-1775. When you head to a horse sale, either looking to buy or sell, you really don't know what's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, horses can leave the ring undersold or overpriced. But what if there was a better way to ensure a fair market price for both the buyer and seller? Here at The Stable, this fall, we're offering just that. We offer the ability to see your yearlings hard at work while giving you a better chance to make informed decisions that are calculated, not spur of the moment. We'll also provide in-depth commentary from our trainers, blacksmiths, and veterinarians on how each horse is progressing. And welcome back. Uh on the line with us right now is a good friend, uh, Betsy Sell. Uh, Betsy is a dressage writer who uh, has achieved a lot of success in her career, uh, winning a gold medal in the Pan Am Games uh, with her horse, Wonderful Walden, uh, and now is kind of reinventing that career a little bit. Betsy, welcome on board. Hi, Les. Thank you for having me. Hi. Uh, it seems like we have lost Kearney somewhere in the the internet world. Uh, we can't seem to reach him, uh, but Doug is still continuing to try to get him on the line. Uh, okay. How are you this morning? I'm very well. How are you? Good. Hey, well, since Kearney's not with us, let's talk a little bit about you, if that's okay. 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 So back back around, back around the turn of the century. Uh, you, you had tremendous success with an exceptional horse, uh, and you won the gold medal in dressage and tell us a little bit what happened. It was actually a team. It was a team gold medal. Um, it was, yes, it was a team gold medal and we finished fourth individually in the 1999 Pan American games in Winnipeg, Canada. And so you had this great horse and you competed for how many more years with him? We went like a good 10 years after that. Um, we did Grand Prix all over the place. He was very competitive for a long time. He didn't always win, but he sure was in there. You know, he, he won some big ones. Um, but he was just such an amazing quality horse who always tried for me and really went for a very, very long time to some very big shows. We did Devon several times. We did the Festival Champion several times. We did, back in the day when there's Detroit Dressage, we did Lamplight. Um, we did many years in um, Wellington, Florida. And he was just a true gift, the horse of a lifetime. So now he retires in maybe 2010. And uh, we yeah. And for dressage riders, when you retire, you know, an old friend like that, because you've been with them for so many years, it, that must have been a, a time that you had to do a little bit of adjusting as far as your, where you were at in your career and what you were thinking about. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. And um, my horse, Wonderful Walden, set the bar very high. And 
during the years I had him, I did um, acquire various other horses. Um, and then after him, I acquired various other horses. But there was never quite the connection, quite the same thing. And again, it was, I think, because the standard had been set so high. You know, in the thoroughbred industry, we go through horses a little bit, matter of fact, a lot faster. Uh, but when one of your favorites leaves and there's that empty stall, it's it's a little gut-wrenching at first. It It is. It really is. And um, what was hard for me also is I had such fun riding him. Like, really, there are some horses you have a bad day or whatever, and I almost never had a bad day on that horse. He was just pure joy. And so I got very finicky and... I had been so spoiled that I didn't ride a horse that wasn't really fun. And so how long did it take to kind of rebound from that or readjust um, to it that? It took quite a few years, and I tried a couple, and I had weird bad luck, which all horse people know how that goes. EPM, various weird things, um, colic and die. You know, various things happen to these horses, and... Uh, there was a time then when I just kind of thought, well, maybe I'm just not supposed to ride. And I did take just about a year off, and I was fine. Um, I still had my farm, and I still had horses there, but I didn't myself ride for a while. And I was okay. But then I kind of got anxious again and found a young horse. And, of course, I didn't want to ride the young horse, but I got someone else riding him. And then he had some problems. So then I got another young horse, and this one I decided, all right, I'm just going to ride him. He looked very sweet and nice, and this was about five, going on five years ago now. And um, I bought him from someone who had ridden his mother, who bred him, raised him as a foal, trained him, and I thought, okay, this is a horse that has history. Like, someone knows his history, and hopefully there won't be any surprises, because prior to that I had bought horses from a dealer here and there and with no real idea of a history. So I now have this horse plus the other horse that I bought that I thought wasn't going to be okay. Now he's looking like he's doing well, and I bought a third horse. So I now am in the amazing position where I have three very nice, youngish, for dressage, up-and-coming horses, and I'm thrilled. And that's a reason to get up in the morning for sure. It is. And like I said, when I wasn't riding for that short town, now I, I rode all my life. I'm from Northeast Ohio, which is the home actually of the Grand Prix, the jumping Grand Prix as we know it. The right. first one was in Chagrin Valley Far in Chagrin Valley in nineteen sixty five. And during the seventies I was growing up and you know, we saw the most amazing riders and we'd go to all the shows and I actually started out jumping that dressage. But um we had all that, and <laughs> I was very lucky to see all that. So, you know, I've been doing the horse thing a, a very long time, and so now to come forward and to have these dressage horses and to be trying to do this again after a break. You know, I did horses all my young life, and then I took that about a year break. I was not unhappy. I did a lot of things that I never had time to do before because I lived horses. I was happy not doing horses, but you know what? When you get back and you get some special horses, all your horse 
listeners know, there's nothing at all to compare. Nothing. With that time off, you kind of had a chance to kind of reassess, I think, where you wanted your career to go and where you wanted to allow pressure in and where you wanted to keep pressure out. Am I correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, I did a lot lot of soul-searching, and part of me said, you know, I'm okay to stop now. Maybe the signs are telling me, "Mm, time to change. But then also part of me was saying, you know, you've invested so much time and money and blood, sweat, tears, all that, and there's just some way to keep going. Um, Could I do it? So I guess that's kind of what went out. And now you're back and you're getting ready to start competing again, am I right? I am, yes, yes. I have these younger horses, which in dressage, seven to nine is still kind of young. Um, We're always aiming for the Grand Prix, which only is, well, the very, very gifted riders can bring a horse to Grand Prix at nine or ten, whatever. Um, But really, they don't start really, truly being strong enough and fit enough and trained enough to do the Grand Prix until they're starting their next decade after 10, 11 then they're really starting to come into their own. So I'm slowly developing some horses, three of them, and um, taking the time. Um, and like the two that I'm riding, I have a young professional riding the other one. Um, we don't do a whole lot as far as showing. Like I haven't shown mine. I showed them twice this season in Wellington just to get them in the ring, see how they are, showed them at third level, which is a very medium level. Um, but always with my sight on the Grand Prix. That is the goal. So, so probably I won't do much until uh, we get a little closer to that. Now, th- that's a huge investment, not only in money, but in time and emotion and p- having huge patience. You know, because you're going, out, you're going out there and laying the groundwork for years before you really get yeah. into the ring at a good level. Yeah, is there a, And that was my point. Is there a way to know whether you're going in the right direction or not before you get too, too invested in a horse? Well, certainly the horse will tell you. If the horse really hates the job, you'll know it. If the horse is not sound enough to, to stand up to the job, you will know it. Um, you need to have a huge village behind you. As all horse people know, you have to have a great farrier, a great vet, a great trainer looking out for you. You always need eyes on the ground. No matter how experienced you are, you need eyes on the ground. And um, a great stable manager, a groom who knows your horse, you have to know your horse. Everything, everything, everything all plays in. And you really don't know if your horse will do the Grand Prix until you do the Grand Prix. So you're... And again, it's like any other sport, right? They can train great in the morning, but when the lights come on, you, you don't know until you've been there. That's right. That's right. Um, the other thing is sometimes the horse, when it starts showing the Grand Prix, it might do really well for a show or two or three. And then all of a sudden it decides, wow, this is really a lot of work. And then it might kind of start shutting down a little bit. It does happen, and there's, again, where the horse that I had, that I had such good luck with, 
wonderful Walden, he never said no. Never, never, never said no. Now, you've been doing this a long time, and I'm sure you've taken a lot of bumps and lumps and whatever. And in doing research for the show, I know you won an award a few years ago for fitness. And I think that's so <laughs> don't blush. Uh, uh, no, but I think that's something that people don't realize about dressage riders. They, they don't realize yeah. how fit you have to be to compete at the upper levels. Well, you do, um, because it is a little like being a dancer or something. Um, a, an elegant dressage rider has to be fit, has to be coordinated, has to look elegant on the horse. I mean, it is a subjective sport. It's not like jumping where clearly the rail is down or it's not. Um, it is somewhat subjective. And really, all my riding life, I've done some sort of fitness routine of some sort. And I really watch what I eat, and I'm careful about taking care of myself. Just like I take care of my horses, I'm very careful to condition myself. And um, I, th I think it is very important because we are athletes. And to do our horses, our athletes, justice, we have to also be athletes. That's a good, very good point. And now you've made me feel very self-conscious when we go out to dinner. I guess I better not put my hand in the... <laughs> No, I'm just not going to put my hand in the breadbasket this time because you'll look at me. Uh, but, uh, no, uh, listen, we're running out of time. I appreciate you being on the, on the line with us. Uh, we're going to make Kearney buy cocktails next time we go to dinner since he didn't show up. Uh, oh, no. But we'll, we'll, but we'll get him back on, on the show at another time. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right. And uh, thank you so much. as always, a pleasure talking with you. And folks, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been the Equisport News. Uh, my name is Les Salzman, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks a lot. Here's Bearcat. Here they come, spinning out of the turn. Dancers, Bearcat puts ahead in front. TK Skipper fights back down along the rail, and they slug it out. TK Skipper has the lead along the rail. Dancers, Bearcat, second freight saver to the outside in third. Kurtz first, down along the rail, fourth down the stretch. Inside the furlong marker, TK Skipper about to win another freight saver on the outside. Then along the rail, rare storm. But it's TK Skipper again. Another fine performance. TK Skipper by two and a half. Freight saver second, rare storm third.